you've got a Bible, open up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we are working our way line by line through this book. So if you're just joining us today, we're so honored to have you. We are plotting our way through this book of 1 John for the next several weeks, honestly leading up to, to Thanksgiving. We'll be here in this book of 1 John. We've chosen to work through this book. We've said this the last few weeks, and I'll remind you. Uh, we've chosen to work through this book because of what it has to say about genuine Christianity. That John is writing uh, that believers might have assurance of what real Christianity looks like and assurance that God actually is their father, that Jesus actually has saved them, uh, and, and assurance of salvation. So he's writing about real Christianity, assurance of salvation, what it looks like for the love of God to transform us, that we might live lives of love back to God and to the world around us. That's why we're working through this book of 1 John. I want to jump right to it today. Uh, we're going to be looking at just two verses, verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. I want to read this passage, and then we'll jump in from there. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And the voice of Jesus, our great King, speaks to us like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of God to us. Well, growing up, I, uh, I played soccer growing up, and uh, one of my most vivid memories, uh, one of my most favorite memories, oddly enough, of growing up playing soccer were those preseason practices, uh, the ones where the coach would set aside the balls and the cones and all the other stuff uh, that you like to do when you think about soccer. He would set aside all of that, uh, and those preseason practices were just given to conditioning. It was just a whole practice of running. Maybe you didn't play soccer, but other sports you know of this where you just showed up and it was not a day to practice. It was a day just to run, right? Uh, and so we would, we would run these ridiculous amounts of 400-meter sprints around the track. And it was just run these things so the coach was tired of seeing you run these things. And these were, again, some, some of my favorite memories because of all that would happen inside of all of this. One of the things I remember is that after we'd been running for a while, these, these ridiculous, stupid, miserable sprints... And what would happen is we'd come to this point of breakdown, you know, and not just physical exhaustion. Like we'd all come to this point where like we're mentally and emotionally breaking down. You could, every year you could know when this point was happening because freshmen would start crying and asking if they could call their mom to come pick them up, right? And it's like the coach knew this moment was about to happen. You would see a couple of freshmen start to have tears well up in their eye as they rounded down the, the track. And he would, at that point, typically look at all of us, take a deep breath and say, bring it in, boys. Take a knee. Take a knee. And so we would come in, we would take a knee, and here's what would happen. You knew it was coming every year. You knew it was coming, but it was always so believable. He would start into this epic speech, and it was the same stupid speech every year, but it was always epic every time. He would start talking to us about the goals we would score in the coming season. He would start talking to us about the, the championship we would play for. He would start talking to us about the brotherhood we would form, the memories we would have that would last forever. He would talk to us about the games we're going to win. He would start calling out some seniors in the crowd and say, you're going to play for Allstate this year, right? And then he would go on in this speech and he would say, the reason we're doing all this running is because we're going to be the team that when it comes to crunch time, 
no one's going to be more prepared than us. No one's going to be in more shape than us. We're going to handle those moments better than anyone we play against. And then he would look at us and typically pull up his coat shorts, you know, take a deep breath and say, so line it up, boys. We've got some more running to do. And when he would say that something crazy would happen, we would all jump up in unison like a bunch of caged animals and start high-fiving one another and cheering and yelling at one another like we were eager to run more of these sprints. And why? Because we started to actually believe what he was saying. We started to actually believe that we could be that kind of team, that we were those kinds of brothers, and that all of this was worth it because of the season we would play for. You see, what he was doing is he was giving a vision of what this whole thing was about. He was giving us a window into the reality of where this whole thing was headed. And as he would do that, we would act like people who had never run sprints before and were eager to do so again, all because we saw the sacrifices we're making now, they're worth it if it means we can get there. They're worth it if it means we can get there. And so, so it is with the Christian life, right? So it is with the Christian life. The day-to-day Christian life, for any of us in the room, can oftentimes be very difficult, the day-to-day Christian life can be painful at times. It can be confusing at times. There are times in the Christian life where you're seeking to obey Jesus, seeking to carry out the commands of God in your life, and sometimes it feels like you're not going to make it. And so what you and I need is a moment where we can have a fresh reminder of what's really true about our lives. A fresh reminder of what's really true about this world and where the whole thing is headed. What you and I need are regular moments where we can be sobered up with a longer view. A sobered up with a longer view where we see, oh yeah, it's not always going to be this way. A heavenly perspective that frames up our life down here and shows us how it ought to be ordered in the here and the now. You see, because here's what's coming for all of us. There's a day coming soon and very soon The scriptures tell us even sooner now than when we first believed, even sooner now than when I first started this sermon. (laughs) There's coming a day when we're going to be there with Jesus. And every sacrifice that you've ever made to have more of Christ in your life here in this world, on that day when you stand before him and you see his face shining in brilliance, it will all be worth it. There's never a sacrifice, there's never a sprint you run, so to speak, down here for Jesus that will on that day shown to be a waste of time. No, 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 on that day when you look at his face, it will all have made sense. Obedience today gets us life with him and this obedience is well worth it. We're looking for as seamless a transition as possible from this life to the face of Jesus. And so it's this kind of vision, it's this kind of vision of the life to come that that John's giving us in the passage here today. He's giving us kind of a frame of reference to see the eternity set before us as believers and how that ought to order the life we have here now. He's trying to show us there are certain things in this life, there are certain things that you're chasing around, those things are gonna pass away. They're not worth giving your life to, but there's other things, there's other things that will last forever. And in those things, he says, pay attention, perk up a bit, right? And so John begins this passage in verse 15 with some really strong language, strong for him at least. If you've been around the Bible long, you know that biblical scholars will call John, the writer of this letter, they'll call him the apostle of love. And the reason they call him that is because he writes on the theme of Christian love more than any other biblical writer. In his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then back to the gospel of John, he mentions the word love 109 times. 
in all of his writings. But he opens up with some really strong language in verse 15, because in the 109 times he mentions love, only one time, and in this passage, does he mention it in the negative. Do not love. Do not love. Every other time he says, love your brothers, love God. He talks about the love of God for you all in the positive. But one time, and in this passage, he mentions it in the negative, do not love. And it's the driving command of our passage. So let's look back at verse 15. Look at what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Okay, so this is some strong language, isn't it? Not only does he tell us what not to love the world, don't love the world. He states it in such a strong way that he says that to love that is opposed to love for God. He draws a clear line in the sand that for anyone who loves the world, you don't have the love of the father. This is strong language. And so it's really important for you to read this passage to go, so what is the world? What does he mean when he says world here? I've got to know because to love that means I don't love God. And so I want to know where God, where he's drawing the line here, right? And we've got to know this because this is the same John that has given us the famous John 3.16, the sign that you see in all the football games in the end zone, right? This is the same John that gives us that passage, for God so loved the world, This is the same John later in John uh, chapter 17. He gives us the high priestly prayer of Jesus where Jesus is praying for his disciples, people like you and me. And Jesus prays, Father, I'm not taking them out of the world, but I'm sending them to the world, just like you sent me to the world. And then here in 1 John chapter two, earlier on, he says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And all of those are positive references to the world as a place or as generally speaking of people in the world. And so obviously when he says it here in verse 15, he's speaking of the world in a different way. He's speaking of the world in a different way. And over over history, there's been a couple of different ways Christians have tried to understand what John means here when he talks about the world. And one way of understanding that is that Christians have seen the world as merely a physical space, as as merely physical, as merely tangible, as merely uh, material, right? Uh, And so that stuff is bad. And what they're going to say is that Christians are only supposed to love spiritual things. And so they'll look at what John is saying here and they'll interpret what he's saying is to say, don't have anything to do with the physical. Don't have anything to do with the material. Uh, That stuff is bad. And so what they'll do because of that understanding is they'll start retreating from everything that's not Christian. They'll start pulling away from everything that they deem to be unspiritual and that they view the world in its physical realities. They go, this is just a place that I'm passing through, that I'm trying to get away from. They want to eject on everything that's of the world, right? And so maybe some of you are familiar with what I'm talking about. Maybe this is your background. So, so, so those who hold this view, they're going to say things like this, that Christians should be those who have no social action. Christians are those who don't have any community involvement. Christians should be those people who pull out of politics, who pull, that that this world is not our home, and so we're going to eject on this place. We're going to have nothing to do with movies, nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with arts, nothing to do with literature or music, unless, of course, it's Christian music or Christian art or Christian books, something made by Christians and for Christians. That's the only, you know, Mel Gibson's the only rated R movie we're going to go see because it's about Jesus, you know? And so what, what this view would hold, this kind of, the world is merely a physical place we're trying to eject from, this view would, would draw a hard line between spiritual things and material things. They draw a hard line, make a hard distinction that honestly gets very hokey uh, really quickly between sacred and secular. 
And what's unfortunate about this view, I, I understand some of the sentiment in this view, but what's unfortunate about this view is this is the view that oftentimes gets popularized by our media and this is what they want to mock about Christians, right? That we're the people who are just anti-everything. We're the people who are just trying to pull out of everything. We're a doomsday people who just see the world and everyone in it as to hell in a handbasket, and uh, we're the only ones that are going to be left, and we're just trying to get out of here. This is the view that gets popularized, unfortunately, right? And this is one way of seeing the world. It's just a place to get away from. But there's a second way of seeing the world. And I think it's closer to what John is talking about here. And it's not primarily seeing the world as a physical space to get away from, but instead it's understanding the world as a mindset or a value system that sees the world as ultimate. It's a mindset or a value system that sees the physical world and acts as though we are our own rulers and everything that's in the world exists for our pleasure. This is another way of seeing the world. It's a mindset. It's a value system. It's a mentality that says, I rule me and my pleasures are ultimate. And the reason I I believe this is what John is talking about here, this view of the world this way, is because of what he says in verse 16, the way he defines the world. Look at what he says. He says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, it's from the world. So you see it there. The way he defines the world is in Pride of the eyes, or lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. He, he defines it in terms of a mentality, a value system, a way of seeing and interacting with the world as though all that's here and all the reason this exists is for my own gratification and my own promotion. Self-gratification, self-promotion. It's a way of living in the world he's talking about, a way of living in the world where you want all the pleasure and all the delight of God's world but you want it without God and without his order. And so John is saying, this is the view I'm talking about here, a mindset, a value system. Don't love the world like that. Don't love the world like that. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's talking about pride and possessions, all the stuff you have, your wealth, your riches. He says, don't view the world like that. Now, I think it's, to, it's important to note here that John is not saying that God is now somehow anti-pleasure. John's not saying that. He's not saying that God is anti-desire, anti-delight, or anti-joy. This is not what John is suggesting. In fact, Psalm 16, verse 11 is gonna say that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. So joy actually flows from God. It emanates from God. The fullness of joy belongs to God. And then it goes on to say there are pleasures forever at his right hand. Pleasures forever. What's really pleasing, what's really delightful belongs to God and comes from God. So just to get really practical, sex was God's idea. Like he designed it. Good food, good drink, those are God's creation. Everything that's beautiful that you can see, it flows from the wild creativity of God. Like think back to the beginning, just to make this point clear. Think back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve walked away from God, God had placed them in this beautiful, wonderful garden where it says everything was good and right. It even says in Genesis 2, it was pleasing to the eye. There was nothing unpleasing or undelightful about the garden. And in this place, God gave them two commands. One, eat and enjoy everything you see. 
except the tree in the middle. Eat and enjoy. And the second command, be fruitful and multiply. And he wasn't talking about farming. If you catch my drift. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'm talking about farming. I'm talking about enjoying one another in the context of covenant marriage. So God is not anti-pleasure. He's not anti-delight. In fact, the, the, the Hebrew meaning for Eden is delight. The, the name of the garden was garden of delight. God is pro-pleasure. He's pro-desire. He's pro-freedom in this way. And so what God is opposed to, what this passage is calling us away from, is taking desires for the good things that God has given to us. Sex, food, drink, riches, health. Taking desires for the good gifts that God's given to us and then pursuing those things abstracted from God to do with those things whatever we see fit and however we want them and to do with them whatever, whatever we desire. That's what God is opposed to. So a great definition of lust is lust is the abuse of legitimate desire. Lust is the abuse of legitimate desire. It's taking a desire for a good thing and then ripping it out of its context to do with it whatever you want, however you want to, and whenever you want to. And so God is pro-desire. He's pro-pleasure. But God is anti-abuse. God is anti-abuse. The lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And so the reason that John talks about the world this way is because the whole world is into it. Everybody's into this. Everybody's caught up in this. When Adam and Eve walked away from God, when they sinned, sin entered into the world, but not just into the world, into the human heart. The sickness of sin is something that pervades in every one of us. So when we talk about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, when we talk about the pride of life, we're not just talking about something that's happening out there, outside of these church walls. We're talking about something that's present in this room, present in you, that's present in me. We're talking about something that's inside of us. And so this stings, this stings. We're saying, hey, don't love the world. The love of the world means you don't have the love of God, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And all of a sudden we see that's in here. This stings. This stings me. This week as I prepped this, man, I was drawn to tears a couple of times just thinking through the fact that, man, I've been walking with Jesus for 15 years now. And the best I know how by the power of the Holy Spirit, repenting as often as I see sin, learning how to follow Jesus. And there are still more areas than I would like to admit where love for the world is present in my heart. And the hard part this week about trying to diagnose where I'm loving the world is that there are many places in my heart, and I think the same is true for us. There are many places in our hearts where it's hard to detect because we've just become so accustomed to it. There are places where you and I love the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life is so present within you, but it doesn't even register anymore because you've just become so used to it. And so even just here in the middle of the sermon, I want to take a moment and just kind of ask some diagnostic questions on these three points, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, just to kind of help kind of see where you are. Questions I was asking myself this week. So when it comes to the lust of the flesh, 
where do you find greater excitement and thrill? In discovering your next sexual experience or honoring and obeying God as the one who holds pleasures forever and having your appetites ordered by him? What gives you greater excitement? Let me ask it this way. What tends to dominate your mind when it comes to lust of the flesh? Is it having your life ordered by God or is it having your mind carrying out the next fantasy? Lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. What's your greater ambition in life? Being noticed and praised and promoted by the people around you. Or is it in honoring God, even though sometimes and oftentimes that means you'll go unnoticed? The lust of the eyes means the lust of wanting to be seen, the lust of wanting to be noticed and magnified. Is your greater ambition to be praised by people or to honor God and oftentimes go unnoticed? Maybe another way of asking this question, how much time do you spend on social media looking for people who are mentioning you and commenting on your stuff? That one stings. <laughs> that one stings. Think about the pride of life. The pride of life. Where is your greater confidence? Where is your greater confidence? Is it in the size of your bank account, in the stuff that you own, and in the acquisition of new things to show off? Or is your greater confidence in knowing the Father who will always protect you and provide for you? Maybe one more question just for good measure. Where in any of these questions have you felt yourself wanting to defend yourself? Well, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know my situation. That's an unfair question. You see, here's what I noticed about my own life. What you want to defend is oftentimes indication of what you love. You defend what you love. So where in any of these questions were you wanting to defend yourself? Okay, so now that we all feel sufficiently unsaved, <laughs> man, I think when you consider this, you have to be honest, like this stuff creeps on us more than we want to admit, you know? And some of you are here today going, man, I came to church today wanting happy church. I wanted to feel good about all of this. I don't know about all of this, right? But remember, at no point in what John is teaching in this book is he suggesting perfectionism. John is never suggesting perfectionism, but what he's doing is he's willing to speak honest enough to us to pull out a genuine Christianity. He's not talking about, hey, go ahead and love Jesus and live the life you would want to live anyway. Adding Jesus to that. No, no, no. He's wanting to pull out an honest Christianity where Jesus is actually king and we love his kingdom more than this world. He's, he's honest with us. And so the question is, do we all struggle with desires of the flesh? Do we all battle against sad and broken desires? Yes, every one of us. But the question behind that question is not, do you struggle? But it's, do you hate it? When you see those things, when you see those distorted and sick places in your life where you're loving the world and you're opposed to what God is calling you to, where you see those places, do you hate it and do you wish it wasn't there? Does it 
Does it grieve you that it's there? And do you fight against it, begging God to remove it? That's the question. Do we all struggle with this? Absolutely. But do you hate it? Do you hate it? Because if you do, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's evidence that you love God and you don't love the things that he hates. That you're warring against it. Or are you living with a kind of mentality that you don't have any regard for what God says? You just do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, and however you want to do it. And then you come to church on Sundays to make yourself feel better about all that, just making yourself a more well-rounded person. You see, that's the kind of mentality that John is warning us against. He's not warning us against, do you see this present in your life and are you fighting against it? He's warning us against living your life as you would anyway and not worrying about anything God says, just trying to appease your life with more well-roundedness and spirituality. He's warning you against that. He's warning you against that. But also, I want you to notice the end of verse 16. There's something fascinating here at the end of verse 16, beginning of verse 17, because he tells us why we shouldn't love the world this way. He's not just telling us don't love the world. He's actually going to give us a why we shouldn't, an incentive. Look at what he says at the end of 17 or 16. He says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. He says, this is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world is passing away. So I love this. I love what John is saying here. He says that there's, he gives us two reasons why you and I should aim our lives and aim our love against the world and its desires. There's two reasons. You don't love the world, number one, because it's not from the Father. This mindset, this mentality, this value system of taking whatever you can, as much as you can, regardless of what God says in your own way, he says that that's not from the Father. That's reason number one. The second reason, he says it's passing away. It's passing. It's not going to last forever. It's empty. And the reason I love this is because he's just being honest with us. So some of you think that Christianity is all about fear-mongering and threatening you with consequences just to be more moral. Like, hey, you better figure out how to pull your life together or else. But notice that's not at all how John is speaking. That's not Christianity. That's not the voice of God. But he says very, very plainly to us, no, 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 listen. You don't love the world like this. Because it's not from the Father. It's not from your Father. Now track with me here. If you're not a Christian in the room today, this might not make much sense to you. This might not make much sense to you. But if you are a Christian, this language, it's not from the Father, this is everything to you. If you do know the love of God, if you do know the adopting grace of God to pull you from a spiritual orphan to now a son, a daughter of God, a brother with with Christ as your older brother, if you know the adopting grace of God, if you know his care, if you know the way he's released you from your sins by the blood of his son, then the nearness of your father is everything to you. This language, it's not from the father, is given to us here because it's supposed to melt your heart. It's supposed to soften your heart because nearness to your father is everything. Even though the desires of this world war against you, even though they punch your mind and they punch your heart with impulses that rage all the time, you know that nearness to your father is everything because you know the heart of your father is only good and he never withholds good things from his own. So think about Jesus here. Think about Jesus. 
when you think about the final sufferings of Jesus, the thing that tore the heart of Christ more than anything else, it wasn't the betrayal of a close friend. The thing that tore the heart of Christ wasn't the betrayal of a close friend. It wasn't a trumped up trial with false accusations. It wasn't even laying down his own life at the will of the father. That's not what tore his heart. The greatest agony for Jesus in the final sufferings came on the cross when he experienced for the first time what it was like to be separated from the father. Remember his cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what agonized Jesus in his sufferings. Separation from his father. You see, for those who know the father, His nearness is everything. Psalm 73, verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. It's my good. And so when you read this, it's not from the Father that's supposed to melt your heart. That's supposed to soften your heart. And so finally, as we end this morning, I want to talk about some very practical things here, some applications. How can you and I Fight against a love for the world and cultivate a love and a nearness toward our Father. So three things. The first thing is this. Throw yourself on Jesus. Throw yourself on Jesus. The way you fight against love for the world and cultivate a love for the Father is to throw yourself on the Son of God. Look back up at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is the foundation through which John says everything in the rest of this book. In verse 1, he says this of chapter two. But if anyone does sin, again, it's not perfectionism. If any of you do sin, look at what he says. We have an advocate with the father. We have one who pleads our case before God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice. He paid for your sins and not just for yours, but for the sins of the whole world. The beautiful thing about Jesus and why throwing yourself on him is so massive is because for those who trust Jesus, Your sin does not get the final word over you. Your sin does not define you. He paid for it and your sin will not win. The resurrection proves that. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus. One of my favorite Puritan pastors, Robert Murray McShane, he says this about the whole thing. He says, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ For he's altogether lovely and there'll be no more room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at the marvelous savior of the world who's your advocate and propitiation. Throw yourself on Jesus. Throw yourself on Jesus. The second application, hang tight to the promises of God. Hang tight to the promises of God. The Bible is chocked full. The Bible is stuffed full of promises of God's faithfulness and how he wins for his people. And so when you're thinking about fighting against love for the world, when you're thinking about those desires that want to rage in you and turn your mind back to the passions of this world, the Christian tactic of fight is not just white your knuckles and try harder. That's not gospel. That's law, right? The good news of Jesus, you don't white your knuckles and try harder. No, you hang tight to the promises of God and you beg him to unite your desires to him. You beg God for new desires. He's your king. He's your champion. He's your deliverer. You beg him. And one of my favorite promises, 
one of my favorite promises to cling to when I fight my own desires is Psalm 4, verse 7. Psalm 4, verse 7, it says, you have put more joy, you have put more joy in my heart than they have the world when their wine and when their grain abounds. I love that. I love that. When the world is at its shiniest, when it looks its most appealing, it has nothing on nearness to God and joy in him. It has nothing. You have put more joy. And just think about your own history with Jesus if you're a follower of him. Your own history of his goodness proves this text. He has put more joy in your heart than the world has when it looks its shiniest. So you throw yourself on Jesus. You hold tight to his promises. And the final thing this morning is you look forward to the coming day. You look forward to the coming day. Look again at verse 17. Look at how it ends. He says, the world is passing away. The world is passing away along with its desires, but look at the end. But whoever does the will of God, what? Abides forever. This is what we said at the beginning of the morning. That very often in the Christian life, what you and I need is to be sobered up with a bigger vision, sobered up with a longer vision, a heavenly vision that makes sense of the current fight against temptation that you and I have in the here and now. A heavenly vision cures that. Or it frames it up at least. And so just, just pause with me for a second. Imagine a world where there's no more lust. No more insecurity. No more greed. No more doubt. No more anxiety. No more injustice. No more debt. No more sickness. You see that? That day is coming for you, believer. That day is coming for you. That world has been purchased for you by death and resurrection. Your resurrection is secure because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. His is yours and you're going to be with him in endless joy forever. Set your mind to that day. In fact, peeking forward in John to chapter three, look at what he says in verse two and three. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And look at verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. Looking forward to that coming day has a purifying effect on the soul as you fight love for the world. So you throw yourself on Jesus, your champion. You hold tight to his promises. And you look forward to the coming day when faith will no longer be needed because it's face to face. It's face to face. And so John says, the world, this thing is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, he's the one who lives forever. Forever.